Burrow is a furniture company known for timeless design and thoughtful construction, and free shipping, and that extends to their outdoor collection. Their outdoor furniture is built to withstand the elements, featuring rust-proof stainless steel hardware, weather-ready teak, and quick-dry foam cushions. For Memorial Day, get 15% off your Burrow purchase at burrow.com slash ACAST and up to 25% off outdoor. That's up to 25% off outdoor furniture at burrow.com slash ACAST. Hiring for your small business? If you're not looking for professionals on LinkedIn, you're looking in the wrong place. That's like looking for your car keys in a fish tank. LinkedIn helps you hire professionals you can't find anywhere else, even those who aren't actively searching for a new job but might be open to the perfect role. In a given month, over 70% of LinkedIn users don't even visit other leading job sites. So start looking in the right place. With LinkedIn, you can hire professionals like a professional. Post your free job on linkedin.com slash people today. Welcome to Neon, the podcast that takes pop culture and reveals the history behind it. I'm Jem Daduchu, and this time round we're looking at Troy, Fall of a City. And that means on this particular episode, I will have to talk about Homer and the Iliad that he wrote. Or maybe he didn't. But more importantly, of course, I'm going to be talking naturally about marketing sequels, A Different Siege, The Siege of Candia, and A Birth of a New Way to Look at History. All of this can be taken from Troy, Fall of a City. You've been here for three and a half hours. Now, how many different ways do you want me to tell the same story? Notice anything unusual about Santa Carla yet? No. It's a pretty cool place. I'm impressed. How many questions does it usually take to spot? As your leader, I encourage you from time to time, and always in a respectful manner, to question my logic. Now to run a computer check on this tape and the professor. Dodge this. The tracks go off in this direction. First of all, what is the actual thing I'm talking about? It's a TV show that's, I think, co-funded between the BBC and might be Netflix. I'm not entirely sure, but I'm not sure how it's just distributed above and beyond the United Kingdom. But it's a fairly expensive, historical, dramery, epic-y type thing. And I've been watching it. Uh, if you are watching it at the moment, you'll know that we're not at the end yet. It's an eight-part series, but it's one of these stories that's so famous that I think I can get on with it without necessarily spoiling anything. Indeed, they do actually spoil what happens because of the name of the show, Troy, Fall of a City. I'll be coming on to that in a moment. But what I said I would start off with is Homer and the Iliad. This story comes from the oldest story from the West or Europe, and it was written around about 
the 8th century BC, allegedly by Homer. Now, what's interesting is this stuff is all going to be up for debate. Almost everything that I'm going to be saying in this podcast about this story, I might as well throw the caveat right now saying allegedly, or it is thought, or the majority of historians think, because the debate around the historiosity of this story began in ancient Greek times. And indeed, it is worth pausing that the story is written down in the 8th century BC. And what we tend to think of as the glory days of ancient Greece, the Hellenic era, happened centuries after this was written down. So this was already a well-established old story by the time you got things like the Peloponnesian War or the, the War with Persia. All of that happened centuries after this was written down. And what's interesting is it's describing events that happened centuries before. Indeed, a lot of the ancient scholars, and you know, this debate spread from ancient Greece into ancient Rome and is still being discussed today, was the fact that in the ancient Greek terms, they recognized there were legendary elements to this story. This is a story that have the gods running around and interacting all over the place. And even in ancient Greece, even the religious Greeks who obviously had their temples everywhere recognized that, well, you know, Zeus and Apollo weren't exactly running around the streets of Athens every day doing things. You couldn't actually see them. So when you think about the fact that there has to be legendary elements, a lot of ancient Greeks therefore said this story of the Trojan War is the last phase of our legendary time. Before that, we have things like, you know, the tales of Prometheus and things like that, which are the times of legends when the gods walk the lands. And Troy was the last time that happened. Or you had people saying, well, you know, yes, there's obviously the legendary aspect, but this is clearly history. So this is the first phase of the historical times. So that was even debated two and a half thousand years ago. Now, exactly when these events occurred is up for debate. I said this is going to happen a lot. But generally, people think it's in the 1100s BC. So give or take about 3,000 years ago. And what it's describing is a culture and society that didn't even exist in ancient Greek times, let alone today. This was at the beginnings of the Bronze Age. This was not in the Iron Age. And it's interesting when you see some of the reproductions of this stuff about whether or not they, they show iron, because bronze was not as solid as iron. This is why you get tales in ancient Greece during the Bronze Age about how a sword was rubbish. A sword was your last line of defense, much better to have a spear. Because if it if you're using bronze rather than iron or steel, a bronze sword was quite soft. You could probably swing it two, three times and then it started to bend or to lose its edge, and it just wasn't a very good weapon, hence why it was a weapon of last resort. But a spear, basically a pointy stick, that's going to work on almost anybody in any situation. If it has a bronze blade at the end, that's great, but also you can use it to wield it a bit like a quarterstaff. It was just a more effective weapon. 
during the Bronze Age. Okay. So let's get back to Homer and the Iliad. Why is it called the Iliad? Well, the interesting thing is the Greeks didn't necessarily call, call Troy, Troy. They also called it Ilium. And it seems that the site of Troy, we coming on to that much later, was a Hittite site. This wasn't Greeks versus Greeks. Obviously, it makes it quite clear in the story itself that they had to travel across the Aegean Sea to this land in what we would now call Turkey or Anatolia. But the assumption is they were both kind of Greek civilizations, but actually no, they were the very edges of the Hittite empire. And it seems after extensive research that the people of Troy never called Troy, Troy, or indeed Ilium. They called it Willusha. And they looked very much to the east. They were part of a larger civilization, the Hittite Empire. Okay, so that's why the Iliad's called the Iliad. But then we come on to Homer himself. Who is he? Did he even exist? Now, when you consider there is debate about Shakespeare existing, and he was around 500 years ago in a time that was heavily documented, if there's debate about, well, was Shakespeare just a, a name of a number of different writers who pooled their resources together? Now, that is largely discredited. But the point is, it is a debate. Well, it's unsurprising about, well, is Homer a real guy? Or is this another example of an amalgamation of a number of different poets, number of different stories, oral traditions that ended up being written down by a number of different scribes? Well, the simple answer is, we'll never know. But the fact that it's been ascribed to Homer, who may or may not have existed, might have been as real as the other famous Homer, Simpson, then I just find that really interesting because most people have heard of Homer. Most people think that he wrote stuff and there's probably think of a statue like Big Beard, etc. But he could be a completely fictional character like Harry Potter. But then, of course, I want to come on to the marketing. It's called Troy Fall of a City. And as I said a little bit earlier on, well, you know, it, that sort of kind of gives it away. And I would say that there is a bit of a problem with that. Now, you know, there are a number of films that have the ending in the title. For example, Lone Survivor or a bridge too far. We know they're not going to take the last bridge in that one. And you could say that's a bit of a marketing no-no. Why give it away? Because with something like the American Special Forces in Afghanistan, which is what Lone Survivor is about, that's not an incredibly famous story where we know only one guy gets out of it. And considering the fact that the guy on the poster is Mark Wahlberg, and when you see the crew, the only person you both recognize and know the name of is Mark Wahlberg, I think you can guess he's the lone survivor. So don't get too attached to the other guys. Now, I think that's a bit of a mistake in something like that because it is not a world famous story. A Bridge Too Far is about Operation Market Garden in World War II, which is not one of the most famous moments in World War II. I'm not sure that that was a particularly good name. But then we come to Troy, fall of a city. And this isn't a statement. This is a genuine, genuine question. Is the Trojan War so famous with the Trojan horse? Is it so famous that to give away the ending in the title doesn't matter? 
because I am aware that I immerse myself in history and I love it. And I am the sort of guy who will happily sit down and watch a TV show like that. But I don't know about the average guy on the street. Really don't. It's a little bit like the apocryphal story about when people came to see Titanic, there was somebody in the cinema who, when somebody said, oh, I can't wait for the ship to sink, they went, oh, you've spoiled the ending to me. Now, I would say Titanic is another example where it's a name that is associated with one thing. As soon as you say Titanic, you think that's the ship that got sunk by the iceberg. And I would probably argue that most people associate Troy with Trojan horse, and therefore, through extrapolation, it's like, that means they must have lost to the Greeks. I'm not going into the famous phrase, beware of Greeks bearing gifts, because I think that is clearly a more obscure saying and comment. But all of this is to do with the marketing. Is it an exciting thing to say, look, you're going to see the fall of a city in this? Or is it better to perhaps give the ending a bit more mystery by just calling it Troy? Like the Wolfgang Peterson movie of 2004. Now, this was not a huge hit, and clearly the motivation behind the creation of the movie Troy starring Brad Pitt, big budget Hollywood film, which took things quite literally. They decided to strip away the gods. We'll be coming on to all that stuff in, in, in a bit, but they took a far more historical sort of point of view about, well, this is probably what the Trojan Wars would have looked like, rather than let's stick all the legends in there. So that was nearly 15 years ago, and it wasn't a huge hit. You know, it made its money back, but it wasn't the mega hit. And it, I think it was that that was the period when, after the mega hit of Gladiator, which suddenly resurrected the sword and sandal movies, we then had a number of different movies that coming out to remind people of the Romans or the Greeks. And some of them were better than others. And Troy was middling, shall we say. It had some good moments, it had some pretty poor acting in it. And it was the last major role of Peter O'Toole, who just quietly at one point just walks on, has a scene with Brad Pitt and basically reminds everybody, this is what acting is, and then leaves. Uh, So that was a different way of taking it. And I would say that the the idea of Troy and the Trojan horse, there was an animated movie recently called Peabody and Sherman, and that had the Trojan wars in it. The idea of the Trojan horse crops up all the time. It's one of those super famous, transcendental even. You know, you don't need to have read the original Iliad to know the idea of the Trojan Wars. It is out there. But exactly how far out there? Well, uh, Jem is not going to sort of put all his money on it, shall we say. But let's talk a little bit about what's in the Iliad. As I said, it has gods. Well, at the early stages of it, you've got Apollo, who is displeased by the situation, causing a plague. And indeed, Achilles has to deal with this plague, which is why he's kind of late for the gathering of the Greeks who are going to head off to, to, to fight against Troy. And also later on, there is the scene, well, you know, this is obviously in the TV show, but also it is in the story itself, where Menelaus of the Greeks uh, challenges Paris uh, from the Trojans, say, look, this is basically an argument about my wife, Helen. So why don't we we have a one-on-one mano-e-mano battle, and whoever wins, wins the entire war. Let's stop the bloodshed by just the two of us having a fight, to which 
It is agreed between the two of them. Both sides agree to honor the outcome. And Menelaus beats Paris. But what happens is that Aphrodite, the goddess, comes down and saves Paris. Paris is kind of her chosen one for throughout this story. And so the gods are interfering in the affairs of men, directly creating more bloodshed and carnage. For the sake of saving Paris, we now have thousands of men dying over this battle. And indeed, Troy will eventually fall as well, showing that Aphrodite's powers are limited. All this sort of stuff was cut out of the 2004 movie, but I'm pleased to see that it's largely in, you know, plus exaggeration, extra bits. Look, it's an eight-part TV show. That's eight hours, and therefore they're going to have to do the Iliad plus a bit, as it were. Which leads me on to the great controversy. I have to be honest, it doesn't look like the critics are in love with this show, and I don't know what the viewership numbers are, but I think you know, it's fun. And it's interesting that it's decided to really look like the Bronze Age. This isn't everybody standing around in togas, which is very tempting to do. And Helen wearing perhaps what we would think as being ancient clothing. But instead, well, I mean, at one point when we first see her, she kind of looks like a peacock, which is just weird. But they've decided to go for some really unusual looks. And particularly, I like the tunics that the men are wearing, which are, they look like they could fall off at any minute because we aren't talking about the cutting edges of technology here. And if it's hot and, you know, it's one of these things where, look, I can't tell you that every single thing in every single shot is historically accurate, but there are definitely elements to it. What's interesting is we, uh, we there were some grumbles about people riding the riding on the backs of horses, and you could see stirrups. Stirrups were a much later invention. There are two reasons why war chariots were a thing in the Bronze Age, and indeed you have things like the the well, the, you've got things like the Hittites, you've got things like the ancient Egyptians, you've got things like the ancient Babylonians who are famous for their war chariots. We can all agree that a war chariot isn't quite as mobile as somebody riding on the back of a horse, but this is for two reasons. Particularly if we go way back, sort of thousands of years to the early ancient Egyptians, that was a time when horses had not. Been being bred to have strong enough backs to carry a man on their back for a long period of time. You basically would break the horse's back. So it was easier to just strap two of them to the front of a chariot and ride. But the other thing was, without stirrups, it was much harder to control a horse's maneuverability when you were on their back. So in every possible way, chariots were better at that time of technology. So we see war, war chariots in the show, and I like that. However, I'm not going to say everything is historically accurate because I can't possibly go for everything. Although one thing I can say is that we have, in the opening scene of the first episode, we have this woman tossing and turning in bed, having um, visions of what's going on. And uh, that bed is shown several times. Why is Jem obsessed by that bed? Because that looks like a really modern bed. It even has a headboard. And I can't think of any ancient headboards in existence. So, okay, I will give them a modern bed. But by and large, things at least 
they look like they're trying to make things look historically accurate, unlike well, an awful lot of historical programs and movies out there. So, you know, I'll give them 10 out of 10. And it definitely has a distinct look to it. But then, and I've seen people complain about this on Twitter. There's this thing about, ah, what's going on? Achilles was white. Well, first of all, the whole thing's a legend. So we don't actually know what color Achilles was. And, but my favorite one is somebody went literally after Achilles was white. Zeus was white. Wait a second. Zeus was a god. You know, at certain points, Zeus was a bull and a swan. So can he not be a black guy? And, and that is a problem. I think in the modern world, we have to recognize there are stories that are about quite often purely about white men. And that doesn't play too well to the modern world. And actually, when we look at the ancient Mediterranean basin, there was a huge amount of trade and interaction. Now, of course, there was a standard way in ancient Greece to paint somebody, and they were white. And there was a standard way to paint people in Egypt, and they were brown, and they invariably were side on. So, yes, there were historical, artistic cliches of the time. But if you think that the side of an amphora is a historically accurate depiction of whatever, no, it's a picture. It's meant to be fun. It's not an absolutely definitive snapshot of what people look like then. And if Zeus can turn himself into animals, there's no reason why he can be portrayed by a black man. Maybe that's just what Zeus felt like being on the day. And I think that nowadays, if it is all a bunch of white guys, it just it doesn't make the same connection. So I'm absolutely fine with that. I think sometimes it can go a bit too far. If I go back, I'm going to say 15 years ago, the RSC did a depiction of Henry V, and Henry V was played by a black man. Don't have a problem with that. What I had a problem with is they were all dressed in modern military kit with rifles, and the big thing about this performance is they drove an APC, an armoured personnel carrier, onto the stage. It looked stunning. Everybody thought it was amazing. But if you've got an armored personnel carrier, suddenly um, yeah, the Battle of Agincourt doesn't really pan out the way it should have done. That was my problem. If you over if you over modernize something, then you take away from an event that really did happen. And that anyway, that, that we're not here to talk about uh, Battle of Agincourt. We're here to talk about Troy. But you take my point. Um, and uh, at some point. I'm Sandra, and I'm just the professional your small business was looking for. But you didn't hire me because you didn't use LinkedIn jobs. LinkedIn has professionals you can't find anywhere else, including those who aren't actively looking for a new job, but might be open to the perfect role, like me. In a given month, over 70% of LinkedIn users don't visit other leading job sites. So if you're not looking on LinkedIn, you'll miss out on great candidates like Sandra. Start hiring professionals like a professional. Post your free job on linkedin.com people today. Burrow is a furniture company known for timeless design and thoughtful construction and free shipping. And that extends to their outdoor collection. Their outdoor furniture is built to withstand the elements, featuring rust-proof stainless steel hardware, weather-ready teak, and quick-dry foam cushions. For Memorial Day, get 15% off your Burrow purchase at burrow.com acast and up to 25% off outdoor. That's up to 25% off outdoor furniture at burrow.com acast. Millions of people have lost weight with personalized plans from Noom. 
like Evan, who can't stand salads and still lost 50 pounds. Salads generally for most people are the easy button, right? For me, that wasn't an option. I never really was a salad guy. That's just not who I am. But Noom worked for me. Get your personalized plan today at Noom.com. Real Noom user compensated to provide their story. In four weeks, the typical Noom user can expect to lose one to two pounds per week. Individual results may vary. I'm pretty sure I'll end up doing a podcast about Darkest Hour. Obviously, we now can say Oscar-winning movie Darkest Hour. But in that one, there is a scene where Churchill quite obviously, uh, this is even at the time I thought this has to be made up and I checked it and it was, uh, when Churchill goes out of the House of Parliament, he goes onto a train, he talks to the common people. And they make very sure that one of the people he talks to is a black man. And there's obviously women that he talks to. And the whole thing is a bit tin-eared because it just feels fake, whereas other bits feel real. And the director said it was a choice because uh, if we didn't do that, it's largely a movie about middle-aged men, white men sitting around in rooms talking. And we wanted to show, you know, the more multicultural inclusion that is London. And, and you know, so you, I, I give them 10 out of 10 for the idea, I maybe give them 5 out of 10 for execution on that one. And I think that if you're sitting there getting very hot and bothered about why is this all being played by, you know, why is this, uh, why is Achilles black or why is Zeus black, et cetera, et cetera. It's like, I'm sorry. You have to be realistic about these things. And oh, by the way, it's not like all the Greeks are being played by Greeks or all the people in Troy are being played by Hittites, which would be Anatolian. So yeah, I mean, you're, you're fine when the white Celts are, are playing Greeks, but you're, you're not cool when a black guy plays a god. So everybody chill out on that one. So that's all the marketing side of things, but that brings us to sequels. And the interesting thing is that the Iliad is the first example of literature in the West and is also the first example of a story to get a sequel, the Odyssey. Because after the Trojan Wars, you get Odysseus, a key character in the Greek world and in the Greek story here, it's the story of his journey back home to Ithaca. And actually, it's the very first thriller with the equivalent of the ticking time bomb in it as well. Basically, I love this. I fell in love with the story of Odysseus at the age of 13 when I read a translated source of it. And basically, after the Trojan Wars, Odysseus has a terrible, torrid time trying to get home. In fact, back home in Ithaca, the sort of lords of the area are saying, well, the king isn't back and says to uh, Odysseus's wife going, well, seeing he's dead, he's definitely dead. Yeah. I mean, it's been a long time since we've seen him. Everybody else from the Trojan Wars come back. You have a husband's dead. So you need to pick a new husband. And so what she says is like, fine, but I am in mourning and I will be in mourning until I finish this tapestry of my husband. And so that, because they didn't have ticking time bombs in those days or a race against the clock. They didn't have clocks then, but this is the earliest idea behind that idea of a race against time. Odysseus, through all the tribulations he's going through, has to get home before his wife finishes the tapestry. And what's interesting is, in the middle of the night. The, he, she was carefully watched by everybody to be getting on with it. Stop dawdling. You know, you're not allowed to go for long walks. You've got to sit there and make the tapestry. So off she goes. But then in the evenings, she would go downstairs when everybody was asleep 
and unpick bits of the tapestry. So she had to do them again, prolonging the situation. I love that idea. And then she's caught. And then basically she's in essence kept under house arrest while everybody pays really close attention to her finishing the tapestry. And then right at the end, there's this competition where Odysseus turns up as this beggar man and, uh, Basically, there's all these things that they've got to do. And Odysseus, the, the most, the challenging one, and this was myth busted, was they had to fire an arrow through a series of axes that had been slammed into the table. Like the axes were creating triangles along the table. There was a, a row of them and you had to fire an arrow all the way through. But because when arrows fly, they actually spin in the air, that's physically impossible. You can fire it between a target, that's fine, but all the way down, if you like a tube, it won't work because there's the arrow will invariably click the side and fall to, to the ground. So anyway, Odysseus proves this, then he flings off his cloak and everybody goes, oh, it's Odysseus, get him. And there's this huge fight, but Odysseus is supported by um I want to say Aphrodite. I don't think it is Aphrodite. Uh, I, ooh, um, Artemis, maybe. Um, I think it is Artemis. Anyway, the point is he's backed up by a god and then Odysseus and this goddess, uh, plow through in bloody carnage all the way through the bad guys. And then he gets the girl at the end. Well, his wife. And so, you know, and he all lives happily ever after. Great story and a sign that the characters were so powerful in the Iliad that there was a demand for more stories because the story of Odysseus, although the places that he goes to are real places, you know, we got things like Cyclopses and all these other things that are clearly legendary. And therefore, this one is far more of a legend slash fairy tale than perhaps the story of Troy ever was. But the thing about Troy is we have this thing about how it was a 10-year siege. Now, a lot of people have said, uh, it says 10-year siege. What they mean is it's a 10-year war. And there's been extensive research around the site of Troy. Coming on to that in a little bit, but um, it does seem that the that they could have carried out a, a fairly extensive fight against the city of Troy. And it probably could have withstood months-long sieges, maybe even as long as a year or two. But the chances of a 10-year siege is slim in those days. But I wanted to tell you about the longest siege in history. Now, some of you might have heard of the 900 days of Leningrad. This is during World War II, where after the colossal fighting around Stalingrad, the Germans decided that rather than go in for street-to-street -street fighting in Leningrad, it was better them, plus uh, their allies, the Finns, to surround Leningrad and starve it into submission. And basically, it lasted 900 day, so nearly three years. And there are other sieges that are lasted a long time, but the longest continual siege in history is the Siege of Candia. And this started in 1648, and it finished in 1669. This lasted 21 years. 
and seeing it was on the island of Crete, isn't a million miles away from where Troy is. Now, of course, we are talking about 2,000 years later. And this siege was between the Venetian Empire and the Ottoman Empire. Indeed, the Ottomans and Venetians had a total of seven wars between each other, and the Venetians lost all but one. Weirdly, the Venetians, it wasn't like they won the last one, or indeed the first one. Randomly, out of all of them, they won the sixth out of seven. Okay, fine. But this was the fifth siege of uh, fifth Ottoman-Venetian war. And what happened was the Ottoman armies uh, arrived on the island of Crete and very quickly took out most of Crete. They did that basically in the first year and then came to the capital city of the Venetian-held Crete, which was Candia, Heraklion, I believe it's now called today. And it had the absolute cutting edge fortifications of the time. But the other critical thing was Candia was a fort, so it could be supplied from sea. And therefore, it was almost impossible to starve out unless you kept any Venetian vessels at bay. Now, Venice is famous for its navy. And what's less known is at that time, the Ottoman Empire had a pretty good navy as well. But what I find fascinating about that is if somebody was born as the Ottoman banners were on the horizon heading towards Candia, they would have been a grown man or woman by the time it ended. And actually, the terms at the end were so favorable. You know, both sides were exhausted. Both sides by the mid 1600s were failing empires. They were all, all already on the wane. And therefore, this was a chance to show the world we're not done yet. And it turned out to be an Ottoman victory. But because it was such a hard-won slog, the terms were incredibly generous to the people of Candia, so that there was actually incentives to stay, not to necessarily leave. They wouldn't even have taxes for the first, I think, three years of them uh, occupying the city. So, hey, tax-free for a few years, showing how hard and the respect given to them. But it does show you that if you have a port with which is well-defended, you can hold out for literally decades. So the idea of the Trojan siege lasting for 10 years is not impossible, but is highly unlikely in the Bronze Age era. And also, Troy was not a port, so it would had to have been supplied by land, and chances are the Greeks would have surrounded it anyway. Then we come to, of course, the most famous part of the story of, Tro of the Trojan Wars, the Trojan Horse, where, if you're unfamiliar, the basic idea was the Greeks pretended that, hey, you Trojans, you've beaten us, so we'll give you this gift of a mighty wooden horse. And uh, we're all leave. And, and so they saw the Greeks leave. And outside as an offering was this great wooden horse, which presumably held, it uh, was about big enough to have hold an entire company of Greek soldiers, maybe. And it was then dragged into the city. And then at night, the, the Greek soldiers come out of the horse, kill lots of uh, Trojans, open up the gates, and the Greeks win the war in a slightly duplicitous, sneaky manner. But well done them. However, if you look at the original writings, what's interesting is it makes the point that the horse was so big that the Trojans had to break down some of their wall and gate to let it in. And it's that phrase that has led some people to say, look, the whole idea of leaving a ridiculously large, big enough to hold a small army in it, horse, 
just it just sounds insane. It makes the Trojans the stupidest people in history. So the other idea is because they had to break down the wall is maybe what this is describing is a siege engine, like a catapult or siege tower or battering ram that was covered or something like that. And indeed, when you look at later siege engines, some of them were given animalistic names. My all-time favourite being one of Edward I's trebuchets, which is like a catapult on steroids, and he called it War Wolf, which has to be one of the coolest names in history. Okay, So the Trojan horse might have been the nickname for a siege engine to break down those pesky walls of Troy to get in there and and lead to a final fight. But as I've been saying with everything else, that's conjecture. So I've run through all the areas except the last one, which is birth of a new way to look at history. And that means I have to talk about Heinrich Schliemann. Now, if you know your stuff, you'll be going, oh, I know exactly where this is going. But it's far more likely you're going to be sitting there going, who? What? Where? Um, So, allow me to explain. History, well, Herodotus's history, which was written centuries actually after Homer, So, but the ancient Greeks seem to have invented the idea of a history, describing events, etc., etc., with uh, Herodotus's history, okay? But even that was fairly legendary with clearly weird made-up stories in it. And oh yeah, unhelpfully, no dates whatsoever. That was the very early edges of the idea of history. But the idea of looking through ancient texts to find out what happened in the past has been around for thousands of years. But what most people don't realize is that other art, that other science, you can debate which one it is, depends who you ask basically, that helps you understand the past. Archaeology started with Heinrich Schliemann at Troy. It is the Trojan Wars that stimulated the idea of archaeology. Now, before you start going, hang on a minute, if you're going to say that Schliemann started excavating in in the 1870s, which is true, by the way, well, things like the British Museum have been around for centuries before. Yes, absolutely. What Schliemann did is he turned this idea of, ooh, that's an interesting old pot, I'm going to stick it on the mantelpiece, into something more rigorous, something more scientific. Now, because he was the first stab at it, that doesn't mean that he got it right. But the point is that prior to Schliemann, basically, if you saw something interesting sticking out of the ground, people would invariably take it and perhaps hang it on the wall or something like that. The British were renowned for being like that. Things like the Elgin marbles or Parthenon marbles. Those were taken from the Parthenon generations before Schliemann was around. But here's the interesting thing about the Parthenon marbles. Uh, They were bought by, well, basically, Elgin went to the governor of the area at the time, which was under Ottoman control. Second time I'm mentioning the Ottomans. And this has led to the Greeks going, ah, what right did the Ottomans have to to sell it on? Well, at the time, they ruled Greeks. I'm so sorry to tell you that, but it was a decade later that you then had the Greek War of Independence, okay? Nobody could tell what the future would be. So Elgin went to the correct authorities who'd been ruling the area for centuries and said, "Uh, can I pay you for these and take them away? The answer was, yeah, sure, fine. 
It is also worth mentioning that the locals at the time showed no regard for ancient history. And this is not on the Greeks. Everywhere in the world tended to just use up the old. Why? Let's take, for example, the Avebury rings, these ancient Neolithic stones in England, okay? And in the middle of them is the small little hamlet of Avebury. And the houses there seem to be suspiciously made out of the same stone as these ancient Neolithic stones. Because if you're a farmer and there's all this building materials around, why not hack it into pieces and build a house out of it? That's not a weird thing. In Egypt, do you know what? Mummies are really good for kindling wood because they're very dry and very flammable. So we have no idea how many mummies were hacked into pieces and used to start bonfires. Okay. So I'm not just picking on the Greeks, but there were examples of Greeks using the Parthenon marbles for shooting practice, also breaking it down and turning it into sort of mortar, like cement, because if you grind up marble, you can mix it in with water and it becomes quite a good adhesive. So, you know, fine. So actually what Elgin did was save the marbles from any further degradation. And uh, yes, he bought them for himself, but when he died, he gave them to the British Museum. By modern standards, this is all a complete mess and hopelessly amateurish. And that's what pretty much everything was like in those days. Oh, it looks pretty. I'll take it out of context, which is super important in archaeology. The thing itself can sometimes be very hard to date unless we know where it was found, in what layer, etc. And it was Schliemann who started to point out, do you know what? I'm noticing different layers of occupation. And therefore, clearly the ones above have to be more modern than the ones further down. And so it was uh, Heinrich Schliemann in the 1870s excavating these Bronze Age mounds in Western Anatolia, which made him come to the conclusion of everybody seems to think that the Trojan Wars are legendary, but there are enough geographical references here and archaeological finds here to imply that this is Troy. Now, I use the word imply because we are at the early days of archaeology. Schliemann didn't imply at all. He said, I found Troy. Here it is. I found Troy. And he became hugely famous because of this. It created a sensation. But to put it this way, the site to this day is still being excavated. And actually, I'm going to finish the story of Troy with a horrific self-confession. Okay. I was there in the 1980s as a child and it had signs up saying, please don't touch anything. But to my father, please don't touch anything has in brackets, except for me. I'm allowed to do whatever I want. And it wasn't particularly well guarded or looked after even in the 1980s. Okay. And we marched around and I, I loved it. I had a great time there. Even as a child, I've loved history and I love the idea of walking around there and seeing all the stuff. And I picked up a little piece of stone and it had some interesting symbols on it. I specifically remember a triangle on that piece of stone. And anyway, so I put it in, I had a little two liter tub ice cream box, which just had little things I found. Things like conkers or friendship bracelets. I don't think it had friendship bracelets, but you get the idea. Or, you know, little things that I found on searches, including that little piece of stone. Okay. Fast forwarding 25 years, I'm sitting there with my wife watching a documentary about Troy and Schliemann. And it says the one thing that we've never found anywhere on the site of Troy is any kind of inscription or writing. At which point it occurred to me, oh my God, that piece of stone has got clearly some kind of script on it and I can't find it. 
I'm terribly sorry. I have damaged the world of history in my own way. Please forgive me on this. I was a kid. I didn't know what I was doing. And I'm very, very sorry. That could well be the biggest regret in my entire life. And believe me, everybody, I have tried really hard to try and find that thing. But, you know, I was 10 at the time. Okay. So I am, I am a, I am just as guilty as Schliemann and indeed Indiana Jones of being a terrible archaeologist, even though I do actually have a degree in archaeology and medieval history. So with that horrible confession there, this is Jem signing out. However, before I do so, if you like this, please give it a five-star review. You can continue the conversation. You can ask questions. You maybe want to know more about that confession. I don't know. Or you might have more suggestions about what you would like to hear on Neon. You can find us on Twitter, on Neon Podcast, or indeed on Facebook as Neon Podcast. I think you can spot a pattern there. Thank you very much for listening. Keep spreading the word about Neon and watch out for another podcast soon. Even when we're on a budget, we still deserve nice things. Quince is a place to scoop up stunning high-end goods for 50 to 80% less than similar brands. They have buttery soft cashmere sweater starting at $50, luxurious Italian leather bags, and so much more. Plus, Quince only works with factories that use safe, ethical, and responsible manufacturing. Get the high-end goods you'll love without the high price tag with Quince. Go to quince.com style for free shipping and 365-day returns. Planning for your next trip? Elevate your travel style with Quince. Quince has all the jet-setting essentials you'll want for your next getaway, like European linen, premium luggage options, buttery soft Italian leather bags, and so much more. And is all priced at 50 to 80% less than similar brands. Plus, Quince only works with factories that use safe and ethical manufacturing practices. Pack your bags with high-quality essentials you'll be wearing for vacations to come with Quince. Go to quince.com slash pack for free shipping and 365-day returns.